Exodus chapter 15, 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Exodus 15 and 16. We're going to dig into a few things this morning, some that should make your heart rejoice and some that uh, might just make you a little uncomfortable, but that's all right. Uh, something I think we can all use as a reminder, certainly one that God has used uh, in my own heart uh, this week. We've been in Exodus and we've been tracing the biggest event in the Old Testament, the deliverance of God's people from Egyptian slavery. That has been the, uh, the theme really now for several uh, several weeks, for months even, as we've looked at the, the plagues, uh, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, the full exodus moving out. And we've seen the jubilation of God's people as they have defeated their enemies, as the Red Sea has come crashing down, wiped out the Egyptians. We saw last week how they sang a song, they busted out the tambourine. I noticed we had the tambourine out uh, this week, maybe we were inspired last week uh, by uh, the Song of Moses, I don't know, but uh, the jubilation here is tangible for them. They are riding a wave of emotion and celebration, no pun intended there. Uh, they, are, they are extremely satisfied right now in how happy they have just, they have come out of slavery, they're celebrating, all is well. But then the question comes, what happens now? Now what do you do? Surely there's a confidence in God that's at an all-time high, right? They've just witnessed God doing these things through the plagues. They've just seen in front of their eyes the, the Red Sea come crashing down around their enemies. Surely their, their, their joy and their confidence is at an all-time high. And surely their obedience and loyalty is unquestioned, right? Well, not so much. And we're going to see that this morning. Let me ask you guys a, a trivia question. Do you guys remember the 1980 U.S. hockey team? You guys remember that team, perhaps the greatest upset in history? Let me ask you guys a question. Who did they beat to win the gold medal that year? Do you guys know? Finland, not Russia. That's a trick question. Sorry. It's a trick question. So what's, what's known is the big win over Russia, right? Over the, the Soviet Union, the, 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 the communist nation, the, these glorious pros that were so wonderful, the biggest upset in history. Even Al Michaels called it a miracle, what, what happened there. They beat them, but they beat them in the game to get to the gold medal game. The only thing that they were guaranteed after they beat the Soviet Union was a silver medal. They weren't guaranteed a gold medal. That was really a game just to make sure they got to the championship game. But this was peak Cold War, peak rub it in their face, celebrate, lose your mind. It's still considered maybe the, the greatest upset in the history of sports. But after they had beaten the Soviet Union, they had to go back out and do it again. They had to go and beat Finland in the gold medal game. Now they did... And so we remember them for their gold medal, but how would we remember that team if they had lost that game? Say they lose that game 4-2. to two. They lose that game, and they've beaten the Soviet Union, but they don't win the championship. How do we remember that team? Are they remembered as fondly? Are they remembered as, as these kind of patriotic heroes that we've built them up to be in the years since then? I mean, it was a massive win for them. But the win over the Soviet Union wasn't 
the big thing. Can you imagine having to go back out and skate and play the, the, the next day, or maybe it was two days after they had to go back out and skate and win again? Can you imagine trying to gather yourself after the emotion of beating the Soviet Union to play and to win that gold medal? It had to, it had to be hard to focus in order to win that final game. But they did it, and they took home the gold. It's just not the moment that everyone remembers. I think the nation of Israel is kind of in that same place right here. They've just, they've just pulled off the greatest upset anyone in the world at that time could have imagined. They've just defeated the most powerful nation in the world. They, they shouldn't have been able to beat Egypt. They shouldn't have even been a battle. But they've defeated Egypt and they did it without even lifting a finger. It was all God's doing. They did it. And then what do you do after you watch the sea close around your enemy and your former slave owners? What do you do after you sing and you celebrate and it's over? Do you just put away the tambourines and head to Elsa's on for lunch? Is that all you do at that point? Do you just say, we're done here? Let's move on with the rest of our life? I mean, what do you do? There's no roadmap for this. There's no historical precedence for this. There's no game plan for what comes next. Israel was looking for a leader. They were looking for a way forward. They were looking for the good life that they were promised, or at least that they envisioned after they got out of Egypt. Unfortunately for them, they weren't handed anything easy. And things didn't go quite as they had expected. So let's read a, a few chunks of Scripture here, and we're going we're gonna to go through this and, and cover a lot of Exodus 15 and 16. And I want to make a few observations, and then we're going to reflect back on that, and that'll be the, the, the outline for the, the rest of the morning here. So Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. The song is over. They're done celebrating. And then in verse 22, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and here he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So quickly we've seen things change Almost overnight here. They've gone from celebrating to within three days, they're complaining. It's almost like we haven't read the past 15 chapters and we've just kind of slipped into a snapshot of the back seat of the family car on the way home from vacation. Do you guys know what that, what that snapshot looks like? There's stuff piled all around your kids. There's the, the floor is covered with candy from the week because you let them eat whatever they wanted. And all they can do is complain because it's Sunday and Chick-fil-A is not open for the trip home. <clears throat> forget the vacation. Forget the week of junk food. Forget all the memories that they've made. Forget the fact that you're broke now. They just want their Chick-fil-A and they're not happy because they can't have it. Israel has passed the Red Sea. They've seen their enemies swallowed up. And what do they do? 
They start to complain. Now, to be fair, they have a legitimate problem here. They are in the desert in the scorching heat, and they have no water. They need water. Their animals need water. Their kids need water. The elderly that are traveling with them need water. They're not just whining to be whining. They had a real need. But that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to our faith. You see, it's one thing to complain whenever life doesn't quite seem fair or when things don't go your way. It can be hard in the moment to see that things really aren't all that bad. To, to realize that, you know what, this is just a, a minor setback. If it's something minor, then it can be hard to kind of, you can kind of get lost in that just a little bit. But shortly your mind can kind of recalibrate and you can realize, you know what, it really wasn't that bad. Things will be okay. Now some of you guys will even whine in, in, in that moment. And some of y'all just need to stop being whiners. I don't, I don't really need to like pull out a passage in Scripture that says, hey, things aren't that bad, stop whining. So for, for you guys that are just whining about little things, I'll just say, stop whining. Nobody likes that. Knock it off. Nobody likes hanging out with whiners. But the real issue comes when you have a real problem that you're dealing with. And things in life do get hard. When you have a legitimate need. We're not talking about the fact that you don't have a luxury car. We're talking about when you don't have a car at all or when you don't have a job or you don't have something that you find truly essential. I'm not talking about when your spouse doesn't cook well. I'm talking about when your spouse can't stand you and you can't figure out what you're going to do or how you're going to make your marriage work. I'm not talking about when your kids can't seem to make good grades. I'm talking about when your kids are far from Jesus and show no signs of coming back. How you respond to God then is where the faith, your faith really is tested. What do you do in those moments? Do you grumble? Do you whine? Do you rage against God? Israel did all of those things. We'll see a lot more of this as we go throughout this book. You see, grumbling is something, this is what Scripture calls it. I call it whining. Scripture calls it grumbling. Grumbling is something that feels really small, but it actually reveals something really, really big. It's like the iceberg that took down the Titanic. Small thing above the water, massive thing below the water. Complaining and grumbling reveals something about our hearts that we don't even fully see. And I'll get to that here in just a minute. And I want to be clear here as I talk about some of this. I'm not talking about feeling concern or sorrow or frustration or dismay or confusion. Those things will happen as you are a disciple of Jesus. Those things should happen. If you don't feel those type of things, then you're probably not following Jesus. You're probably just following a baptized version of yourself. If you follow Jesus, it will get hard and it will get painful and you will feel those things. And that's okay. It's okay to cry out in those times. There is no sin in that. But there is deep sin in grumbling and complaining. And there's a big difference in the two. Israel was grumbling. They wanted to know what God was doing that he couldn't provide them with water. They wanted to know why Moses wasn't leading better. They wanted to know why things were so hard now. So let's keep reading, look a little bit further at what this grumbling looks like, and then we'll make a, a few observations here. <clears throat> Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. That is not sin like we know of sin. That's just a place. Uh, they came to a wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the land of, or died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So now they've gotten their water, but that's not enough. They need more. God gives water, they want a meal. They, they, they need something else. They get the water. So Moses throws the log in the water, and however that happens, it turns into water. They can drink. They drink it, and they're good. They continue on marching, and now they're hungry. They want more. <coughs> There's a lot of, uh, of children books that are out there that are not worth the paper that they're written on. Um, and for some, for some reason, those always kind of become your, your kids' favorites. But there is one children's book that I have read that I find to be truer than any other book that has been written except for maybe the Bible. It's the, it's the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. You guys know that book? You know that one? It starts out, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And when you give him the milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. And when he's finished... He'll ask you for a napkin. And so it goes. And there are books and books and books that are written just like this. And it just makes the point. It illustrates the point. When you give somebody something, they're going to want something more. Every parent knows the truth of this. But the reality is that every one of us has been that mouse too. When we get a cookie, we want a glass of milk. Israel has just been delivered from Egypt. And what do they want? They want water, they want food, they want a place to live. They want an easier life than the one that they had. When that doesn't happen, the complaining and the grumbling starts. And I will show you three things that this grumbling does to us. What grumbling does to you whenever you start to complain and to grumble. And I want to show you what it says after that about us. So three things that it does to you and then two things that it will say about you. So number one, what grumbling does. Grumbling tells a lie. We are people with a very poor memory and a very rich imagination. Our memory is either selective or it is faulty. And our vision of what should or could be is always amazing. Israel has just been delivered from harsh slavery. Slavery where they could not worship freely. Slavery where their youngest sons were murdered. Slavery where their treatment was harsh where life was difficult. Yet when they think back to how those things were just a few months ago, you'd think someone had just kicked them out of the Brazilian steakhouse for eating too much filet. They were convinced that this is exactly how life should have been. And they were convinced that that's how life was. It's funny how we as humans do this. Something about the good old days that in truth, really aren't as good as how we remember them. We have poor memories. Grumbling turns us all into liars. We are quick to believe the lie that Satan loves to whisper into our ears. We are quick to hear what he has to tell us. We are quick to buy into this thing that gets going in our head that says there's more to be had, that Eden isn't that great, that we deserve more, that we deserve the best, that we've had it better before, and that this is far worse. It's a shame. 
And it's the lie that gets whispered in our ears 10,000 times every day. It's the lie that gets whispered in your ear every time you see a a celebrity that you think has it all, that has money, that has talent, that has looks, that has fame. It's the lie that gets whispered in your ear that says, you deserve that. Whatever that is, you fill in the blank. But you deserve that. It's the lie that gets whispered in our ears every time we see a happy couple and we hear the lie saying, that could be you if you hadn't married such a loser. Every time someone gets married, has a baby, celebrates something in life, and you don't have those things, you tell yourself, that should be you too. Why would God put me in this place? And we convince ourselves that either life was great or that life would be great if only this one little thing would change. If only I had this, if only I didn't have this, if only God would have given me this or hadn't afflicted me with this, if only this one thing would change, then life would be great. If you find yourself saying, if only this would change, there's a good chance you're believing a lie that's turning you into a grumbler. If you find yourself thinking that things should be better for you, that you deserve it, that you're owed it, or just that they should be because they should be, you've probably believed a lie that's turning you into a grumbler. If you find yourself saying, I remember when things were better and longing for the good old days and how wonderful they were, you've probably been fed a lie and have turned into a grumbler. Grumbling makes us all liars. Complaining and cynicism are not the result of truth. They are the result of lies that we have bought. The second thing that grumbling does to us is it makes us look for blame. It makes us look for blame. You see, no one grumbles for the sake of grumbling. If you find yourself complaining, if you find yourself whining, it won't be long before you start looking for someone to blame it on. Before you start looking to, to, to put it on someone that, to say, this person is the person that did this to me. This thing is the thing that has, that has done this to me. For Israel, they had an easy choice. Moses was the one that had the bright idea to free them And Moses was the one who clearly didn't have a plan when he got them out of there. They just wanted to stay slaves, and then Moses had to go and free them. Way to go, Moses. So now what's his big plan that they're here? They had an easy place to put their blame. It's one of the perils of leadership. And I don't care if you're leading a church, a business, a football team, a family. I don't care what it is. The leaders take the blame. It's easy and oftentimes... It's lazy. Did Moses do this to them? No. Did Moses promise any of the things that they are now saying that they think they should have? No. But Moses is the one who takes the, bears the brunt of the complaints and the complaining. Again, Israel is in need of some of, the, some of these things here. And the things that they're in need of are legitimate things. Water and food aren't luxuries. These are basic staples. But it's what Israel does that reveals so much about their heart. They they don't cry to God for help. They aren't content to sit there in their misery like they had been in Egypt. 
They were grumbling, and grumblers need someone to blame. So blame they did, and they found Moses as the target. But here's the deal about whenever you start blaming someone for something. Whenever you start asking the question, who's to blame for this? Playing the blame game isn't done for productivity. And I'm talking about in your own life, I'm talking about in, in, in marriage, I'm talking about in your family dynamics, I'm talking about in your job at work. Playing the blame game isn't done for productivity. They're, they're blaming Moses so that they can right a wrong, so that they, can, so they think they can right a wrong, so that they can get moving in a, in a right direction. But that's not what they're actually doing. You see, it's fine if you, want to, if you want to look to someone and truly right a wrong. If you truly want to correct an injustice. That's justice. That's fine. But that's not what Israel's looking to do. All they're wanting to do is point a finger at somebody else so that that finger isn't pointing at them. So that they don't have to just sit there and they're suffering and absorb it. But here's the thing, blaming this stuff on Moses doesn't get them any closer to food. It doesn't get them any closer to water. It doesn't get them any closer to their, to their house that they want or anywhere else. Listen, in your life, you will have no shortage of people to blame for things. Whether it's a business, your family, your marriage, there's no shortage of blame. Chances are, in reality, that the blame is shared by many. And if you are placing the blame on one person for something that's been done, chances are you're believing a lie that says, this person is at fault. And the root of the blame game is a self-righteousness. It is a self-righteousness that says, I haven't done anything wrong here. I deserve better. And grumbling turns us into self-righteous people that think we are above fault, above reproach, and deserve more. Grumblers don't want any fingers pointed at them, so they rush to point fingers at others. And then finally, the third thing that grumbling does is it misses the point. It misses the point altogether. So long as we are busy blaming others, we are distracting ourselves from what's really happening. When Israel starts grumbling, their need is, <clears throat> their need is justified, but the reaction is not. And what grumbling does is it causes us to focus our hearts and focus our minds on the problem instead of the solution. And when we get focused on the problems, the grumbling just grows louder and louder and louder because the solutions will not come. Grumbling is a constant nag in our head that says, look at this, look at this, look at this, and just causes you to, to sit in that and to focus on whatever the problem is that you're dealing with and advances you no closer to a solution. We have a choice. We can believe a lie. We can blame others. We can grumble and we can complain. Or we can take our eyes off of the problem. And we can begin looking toward the only thing that can truly meet us in our suffering, in our pain, in our frustration, in our doubts, in our needs. 
And this is the two things that grumbling tells us about ourselves. We like to think that it's something minor, but it reveals something deep down at our core. One of these things is true if you find yourself a grumbler. Either you don't trust God will come through, or you don't believe that He can. If you are a complainer, if you are a grumbler, if you find yourself doing that at its core, underneath the surface, what's above the water is the complaining and the grumbling. What's below the water and what sustains it is that you either don't think God can come through or you don't think that He will. See, grumbling focuses on the problem because we don't think the problem will or can be solved. We focus on it, we sit in it, but we don't pursue it because we think it just is and that God will not show up. Israel was focused on their lack of food and their lack of water. We focus on our lack of money, our lack of safety, our lack of marital happiness, our parenting failures, our health diagnosis, and the list could go on and on and on. And we think that those things just are. And so we complain, we grumble, and we forget that we serve a God that just parted the the sea for us to walk through. And instead of going to Him for provision, we find someone to blame. And we wish for a better day when things would be better. And that's where we sit. If you find yourself in a place in life when you need something more, whenever you, you, you find yourself dealing with a problem and all you can do is blame, all you can do is wish that it was better, Remember who it is that we serve. The God who just parted the seas. We don't ask God because we don't think He can or we don't think He will. But either way, we don't see Him as a solution. Israel was that way, but Moses wasn't. When the people needed water and they grumbled against Him, did you see what He did? Verse, chapter 15, verse 25. Did you see what Moses did? He turned to God and he asked God what to do. And then God answered. He told Moses to throw a log into the water and it would turn sweet. And it did. And then when it comes to the food, they're in the desert. There's not enough food for all these people. What happens now? Will grumbling help here? Nope. But God can. I'm going to read here. I'm going to read a chunk of this from chapter 16 because I think it's important for us just to see how this works. I'm going to have to, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a big chunk of it. I just want you to see what God does when he hears Israel grumble. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are, <clears throat> for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the, Lord gives you in the, what the Lord, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us. But the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, 
Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Then as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, and say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around, laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you. Then go down with me to verse 31. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, with a taste... The taste like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the, before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So we have an instance here where the people needed something. They needed God to provide something that they couldn't provide for themselves. If they were right-thinking people, they would have considered what they had just seen in the Red Sea. They would have trusted God. They would have prayed to God and asked that God would provide. Instead, they complained, they blamed, and they grumbled. But don't miss this. They complained, and they grumbled, and they whined, and God provided for them anyway. Maybe what you would expect there is they would grumble, and then God would say, well, fine, then I'll teach you a lesson, since you still don't trust me. But that's not what God does. He provides for them anyway. He gave them manna. They didn't even know how to ask for this. God creates and provides for them something that doesn't even exist, something in, in a supply system the world has never even seen. You see, God could and would provide for them. He had not brought them to the desert to die. He had brought them in the desert to continue to show them that there are no other gods like him. He had shown Egypt, they eventually got the picture, now he was going to show another side of himself to Israel that he could provide. But here's the thing about God's provision, and some of you guys need to hear this this morning. We don't ever know what it will look like. We don't know when it will come, and we don't know how we will get it. But it will come. And that is something we can trust and we can celebrate. When the manna came down, Israel had never seen anything like it. They didn't even know what to, what to call it. It's called manna because the word manna means, what is it? So it shows up on the ground, they're like, what is that? I don't know, but that's what we'll call it because we don't know what it is. What is it? I had a Hebrew professor that uh, had previously been a pastor of a small church. He'd been a pastor of a small church and frequently on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings whenever he was done with his sermon, a little old lady would prepare for him a casserole for him to take home as a thank you for his service to their congregation. And he said some of those casseroles looked really good, and some of those, 
Not so much, because it's a casserole, and you have no idea what is in a casserole. And so he just got to the point where whenever one of these sweet old ladies would give him the casserole, he would say, oh, thank you so much. This is like manna, which, which the, the little old lady thought, oh, the pastor is saying this is straight from heaven. This is wonderful. What he was really saying is, what is this stuff? I don't know what this is. So... Um, if I've ever said that to you, I, I apologize. But um, I, that always stuck with me. I thought that was, pre- that was pretty funny. But the reality is this is how God provides for us. God's provision seldom looks like the, what we ask for or the way that we ask for it. But God's provision is always exactly what we need. I imagine after 40 years that that stuff probably wasn't their favorite meal to eat. But it sustained them. And it was a gracious gift in spite of their complaining from God. This morning, I want you to hear me well. Sometimes I, I know that sometimes I can preach pretty hard sermons about the nature of life and about the way God works in our life. Sometimes I can preach those kind of sermons, but the, the, the reality is here that we can look at this and we can know that we serve a God that can be trusted, that is powerful enough to be trusted. And that is good enough to be trusted. God will provide for us. It may not be what we wanted. It may not be what we asked for. And it may not be as wonderful as we had imagined. But it will be what we need. In the midst of suffering, in the grip of pain, in the face of legitimate needs, in the face of, of, a, of a marriage that's falling apart, of, of, of a kid who won't listen, in the, the, the face of so many things, in the face of financial troubles, in the face of all these different things, God has said, I will give you what you need when you need it. But you've got to trust me. He gives them very specific instructions. We're going to talk next week about the role of obedience in the Christian life and what that looks like. We'll see that next week. He gives them very specific instructions about how to, 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 to collect it, how to store it, what to do with it. But all of it, he says, is done so that they would know that I am the Lord, so that they would know that I am gracious, so that they would know that I am willing and able to provide. And that is the God that we serve this morning. So this morning, maybe what you need to hear from this message is stop complaining, stop grumbling, stop believing the lies that you deserve more, stop believing the lies that that, that is constantly whispered in your ear that everyone has it better. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Stop being a, a grumbler and a complainer. Or maybe what you need to hear is trust God. He can and He will provide. And He is gracious and He is good. And that is the Lord that we serve. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this promise that we can trust you that you can and that you will provide. Father, I confess, we confess our tendency to complain, to grumble, to whine, to demand more, to think we deserve more. Father, we confess that not as some innocent little reaction where we just vent, but we confess that as sin before you. Father, I ask that you would take that from my own lips and from my own heart, and I pray that we would be a grateful people. That when faced with legitimate needs and legitimate problems and legitimate pain and suffering, that our first response would not be, God, how could you? But instead, God, will you? 
May our first response be one of trust. May our first, first response be one of faith. And Father, when it's not, I pray that you would grant us that faith. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.